it's me, it's me, it's the D-O-double-G, the road dog, Jesse James, and by my side, as always, is that B-A-double-D-A-double crooked letter, badass Billy Gunn. Together we are the New Age Outlaws, and you're listening to the VOC Nation. And if you ain't down with that, he's got two words for you. Suck it. VOC Nation provides live daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with the hosts and guests by phone call, email, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts include the legendary Ken Resnick, who you probably remember from the AWA and WWE, former WCW performer, the Maestro, Wes Briscoe, who you probably remember from Impact, Brady Hicks, who you remember from Pro Wrestling Illustrated, former WWE and TNA star Shelly Martinez, and former Philly radio personality Bruce Wirt. VOC Nation's two most popular shows are Wrestling With History, featuring Ken Resnick and Bruce Wirt, streaming live on Wednesday nights at 9.30 Eastern, and of course, In The Room, featuring Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks and WCW alum The Maestro. And by the way, both of these shows take callers live during the show. What are you waiting for? Go listen live right now at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all of our podcasts by searching for VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. Oh, and follow them on Twitter, too, at VOC Nation. And welcome to Wrestling With Problems. I'm your host, King David Lane. That's King David Lane on just about every social media platform. So give me a like, follow, and friend request, and I will probably give you one in return. Also, like King David Comedy, that's coming with a K on most major social media platforms. We're here to talk what else but wrestling and problems. We got a stack show, a lot of stuff I want to talk to. Uh, this is one of those weeks. I actually had a lot of stuff that I, you know, put on my note sheet. Well, actually, I don't do a note sheet. <laughs> I do a Google Doc. <laughs> So I got a lot of stuff on my Google Doc this week before this show. And like I said, I've been planning throughout the week that I wanted to talk about. Obviously, like I said, Black History Month, we've been doing it. We've been trying to do it at least one black uh, history subject uh, per week. Uh, some weeks we might do a little bit more, but I definitely want to at least get at least one every uh, episode this month. And I've got a really, really good one for you. This is one I had a kind of forgot about to a degree. I, you know, I knew it. But I kind of forgot about it a little bit, so I wanted to bring it up. Also, I want to send a shout out to a independent wrestler uh, who helped uh, sort of put this in my head too. By the way, that's Darius Lockhart. Uh, so I want to shout out to him because I, like I said, I've kind of forgot about this story for a while, but uh, he did tweet about it. So if you want to check out his uh, Twitter account, by the way, his Twitter account, uh, his handle is. Uh, at D-Lock Pro, that's at D-L-O-C-K Pro, all one word. Uh, shout out to him uh, for doing this. Uh, and he's got a he's got a nice poster too. I real I will ret- will uh, retweet it from the VLC Nation account. I already tweeted it out from the uh, King David Lane account, but I'm gonna treat it white now so you can like, get actually. A good look at the poster just so if you want to see it but it's a wonderful flyer you know uh talking about uh mary horton babs wingo and ethel johnson so we're going to get into that a little bit more a little bit later in the show but i did want to shout him out because he did remind me and i didn't want to forget to mention him and uh and give him credit for putting the idea in my head to talk about this because this was not initially one of the subjects i was going to talk about this month but he uh, did tweet out that poster, that flyer, and it's wonderful. And uh, we don't just like for you to talk about it. Like I say, it's, it's also wonderful when you get a chance to sort of look at some of the history as well. Because, you know, there's not a lot of video footage, I don't believe, of these ladies. And um, they don't get 
they get a little bit of a mention here and there. Like I've seen some things where they get, you know, certain mentions on some WWE program a little bit here and there, but they don't get the same love that like a Mae Young or or a uh, Fabulous Moolah might get. So uh, definitely check that out if you have a chance. Like again, I retweeted it from the VLC Nation at VLC Nation Twitter account. So if you're not following it already, make sure you follow it. And like I said, you can see that see that right now. So. Anyway, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, get into thumbs up. We're going to come back to this just a little bit later. Uh, I want to, again, I thank uh, Darius Lockhart at DLock Pro for the flyer. Also, I'm going to uh, get some of the information from a Vice article, so you can check that out as well. Uh, but first, I want to move on to some other topics. And by the way, I do want to thank SC Scoops for providing a lot of the news that I'm discussing this week. Uh, also, we're going to get into some... Um, Information from WrestlingHeadlines.com that about a WWE meeting they held. That's a little bit later in the show. And uh, WhatCulture.com provided the information we're going to talk about because we're going to talk about the the misfits in WCW because this is one of those subjects I kind of forgot about too, and it just happened that uh, actually it's kind of sometimes you you hear about things in weird places. So uh, actually, the reason that it made me think about the misfits is after a rap video to a rapper called Prof. Well, as a song called, no, I've been listening to it a lot lately. I've been watching a video on YouTube. So uh, he wears a Misfit shirt. And that reminded me, oh, yeah, the Misfits used to wrestle in WCW. So anyway, we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show as well. So, uh, again, lots to talk about. But I'll just uh, go ahead and uh, jump right into it with uh, to send a rest in peace to a former WWE uh, talent, Rusty Brooks. He passed away, I believe, at the age of 63. Yes, age 63. Um, all wrestling fans might not know him. We're, gonna, we're not going to spend that much time about him because he wasn't, you know, quote, a really famous guy. But I do like to pay respect to, you know, some of the other talents, not just the superstars, some of the guys that hope the superstars look good. And particularly back in the uh, the 80s, up until probably, I'd say probably the mid-90s, uh, the, quote, enhancement talents had a little bit more of a prominent role than they do today. Today, there's almost nobody who who wrestles regularly that you see that isn't at least a character. So technically, most of your enhancement talents these days are really more jobbers to the stars than they are true jobbers. Jobbers the guy you might you might see a few times here and there. A lot of times they were just like local indie talents who would, you know, You'd probably never hear from them, or you, or you might see them, you know, once or twice just when they come to that certain location. But they didn't necessarily make the same impact. Guys, now they do have people on the roster who we know their sole purpose is pretty much to lose. But you know, it's it's a little bit different role. You know, uh, at least today's quote jobbers to the stars have at least some kind of gimmick, some kind of personality developed. You know, a lot of guys in the '80s didn't have that. The guys that you saw lose, you you had a couple of like quote jobbers to start. You had like a Coco Beware, Iron Mike Sharp. Barry Horowitz earlier in his run, uh, Steve Lombardi before he became the Brooklyn Brawler. These guys, you know, those those are the guys that you pretty much always knew were going to lose, or you know, if they were losing, they fought anybody of note. But again, the local enhancement talents guys or guys that just didn't get a gimmick and stuff like that, they were a little bit of a different breed of cat. So uh, we're going to give a quick shout out to some of the stuff he did. He actually wrestled for uh, International World Class Championship Wrestling, Florida Championship Wrestling, International Wrestling Alliance. He signed uh, two years into his uh, wrestling career, which would have been around 1984, to WWE. Uh, he actually started wrestling in 1982. Uh, 
Uh, he did get to wrestle guys like Andre the Giant, Ricky Steamboat, and Hulk Hogan. And he actually had a match with with uh with Hogan uh when he was WWF champion. So uh, how many guys can say something like that? So anyway, we, like I said, I did want to pay him a little bit a little bit of respect. Like I said, whenever somebody in the wrestling community dies, we like to give them respect. Like obviously, like I said, I can't give him the long run that I usually give a lot of the other superstars who passed away, but he still deserved you know, his moment in the sun, he deserved to, you know, fame, especially how enhancement talents, they didn't always get the moment in the sun. So, you know, if they didn't get it in life, I, at least I could do is give it to him in death. So uh, shout out to Rusty Brooks. Anyway, now we're going to get into NXT TakeOver Avengers Day. Uh, pretty much everybody that's a wrestling fan uh, within the internet wrestling community can pretty much say NXT TakeOver is very, very good. <laughs> Uh, that happens every time. So this was this was no exception. NXT Takeover Avengers Day was a very very nice card. One of the things I like about the takeovers they only last two to two to two and a half hours. They're much easier to watch than the four hour WWE shows. Uh, all the wrestling and all the matches were good. Um, I would guess uh, if I was if I was going to name probably my favorite match on the card, it probably would have been surprisingly. In it, MSK versus Grizzled Young Veterans. Not that I didn't expect this match to be good, but uh, MSK, I, I kind of always knew how good they were, so I knew they were going to do well. And I, you know, I, I kind of forget how good Wes Lee was, you know, because it's been just a few weeks since I've seen him, but not that long. Uh, Impact, while I watch it every week, I don't focus on it directly as much, so I don't always see every little bit of talent and every little thing every guy can do. Uh, but Pay-per-views, I watch as much as I can concentrate on them. So this is the first time I've probably seen the Grasco slash MSK and fully, completely invested in their match and completely watched it. I've seen, obviously, highlights. I've seen bits here and there. But I was really impressed by these guys, even more so than when I was with Impact. Because, like I said, Impact, I watch it, but I don't – it's on in the background. If I hear, you know, the announcer yelling really loud or something else, I might focus on it. Or a few minutes here and there, I might pay attention, but – Largely, it's on in the background. I don't pay that much attention to it, you know, as far as direct focus. But uh, the Grizzly Young Veterans impressed me in this match, too, because while I, you know, I thought they were solid, you know, I didn't think they were anything special, but they actually showed me they are, you know, something, you know, special. They actually had some original moves, some good stuff that I like seeing. Uh, they they kind of reminded me of, in a large degree of how I liked uh, the revival, you know, prior to them completely blowing up. So they could... Hopefully, if they do well, sort of follow that same track because they do have a little bit of an old school feel. You know, I like the fact that they actually came out and talked about you know keep your flips to yourself and that kind of stuff. Although it's weird when you talk when you tell a team to keep their flips to yourself and you talk about how you're going to beat them up and all that stuff, and then you end up, end up and do a 450 splash. It's, it's, it's like when a revival did the uh, member did did the splash after he talked about no flips, let's flips. It's like hey. If you're going to stick to that, stick to that. <laughs> it looks silly when you talk about it and then just do the exact opposite. But anyway, uh, overall, uh, I'd say my predictions didn't. Uh, my predictions went, I kind of went, I think I went 60%. I think I got three out of five. I was I was expecting, you know, Pete Dunn to pull off the victory over Finn Balor. I thought Pat Maxfield was going to come back and interfere, but that did not happen. I did not see the Adam Cole swerve coming in, so... Uh, 
in case if you haven't watched it, you know, I'm not going to say any more than that. I probably shouldn't have mentioned that because that's a little bit of a spoiler. But uh, Adam Cole had an impact near the end of the show. So definitely check that out. Uh, but overall, like I said, very, very good matches. Like I said, MSK versus Green Rose was probably my favorite match. Uh, there was nothing on the card that was bad. There was, I probably said it was nothing even on the card that was even average. Everything was either good to excellent. So I'd say MSK versus Grizzly Young Veterans, excellent. I'd say Io Shirai versus Mercedes, Mercedes Martinez, Tony Storm, good. I would say Finn Balor versus Pete Dunne, uh, very good. More so than the wrestling, the storytelling of the match was actually better than the actual wrestling. Not that the wrestling was bad, but I think both of these guys could put on a bush gooder pure wrestling match. But the storytelling of the wrestling match was very, very good in that match. They probably did a better better job of storytelling within the match than any other match on the card did. So, uh, And again, the wrestling was good. I'm not saying the wrestling wasn't good. I'm saying both these guys could probably, you know, even do a much better wrestling match from as far as moves than this match was done. But still, still that said, the wrestling was very, very good in the match. Uh, Journey got counter. Journey Johnny Gargano versus Kushida, another good match. I, I would probably say that falls in the category of good, not great. Again, these guys could probably do a little bit more. Not that anything needed was bad. And Dakota Kai and Ra- Ra- Raquel Gonzalez versus Ember Moon versus Jesse Byhart. This is another excellent match. Uh, and for you know, for Ember Moon and Sasha Byhart not really being a team, and really you think Dakota Kai and even Raquel Gonzalez is more, I kind of look at them more as a bodyguard and a wrestler as opposed to a traditional tag team that have been working together for so long. They did a, a very, very impressive job within their match too. So, uh, and of course, uh, obviously, uh, Kai and Gonzalez, they became the first women's Dusty tag team championship champions. Uh, MSK uh, won the Dusty tag team for the, on the men's side. Gargano won the match for the NXT title, so he retained. Uh, Io Shirai retained her women's type championship for NXT, and of course, Finn Balor uh, uh, retained the NXT championship. So, anyway, sorry about that if you were if you didn't want any spoilers for the match, but of course, I think by the time I went through the first match, if I spoil that for you, you probably shouldn't have been listening <laughs> for the next 30 to 60 seconds. So I apologize for spoiling this first match. Anything after that, that's on you. <laughs> but anyway, this is a this is a very, very good card. Very, very solid work. Uh, and I enjoyed it a lot. So anyway, I will move on to other things. Let's see what we got. Uh, again, this is... Uh, what culture is the one I'm taking a lot of this information for? Uh, there was there was some stuff that I kind of knew about and some kind of stuff that I didn't think about. Uh, I remember back uh, when uh, the Misfits came to WCW. I remember about the time, uh, it's right around the time ICP had been there. Uh, ICP had been in... Uh, ECW, they had been in WWF, and then they went to WCW after they left WWF. Um, around that time, they also had, uh, they were like sort of teamed up with Vampiro. Uh, Raven teamed up with them as well. So you had Raven, Shaggy Tudo, Violent J, uh, and Vampiro in the Deadpool. Uh, they had a few with Rey Mysterio Jr., Eddie Guerrero, and Billy Kidman. 
and eventually they ended up having a feud, feud at, uh, in a six-man tag at Fall Brawl. Eventually, ICP left because they had you know other you know stuff. Because obviously, since they're musicians, they had a lot of different you know irons in the fire. They did come back eventually around in 2000, but uh, for a while, Vampiro didn't have anything to do, so they like uh, it didn't make sense for Vampiro to use ICP music since he wasn't there. So next, you know, they uh, uh, later on he ended up uh, suggesting uh, Misfits. Because he's basically he's he's more uh, more of a punk rock sort of guy than he was a rap guy. Even though you know ICP sort of plays with various genres, you know horrorcore, a lot of other stuff. Anyway, they asked Vampiro. He's like, yeah, uh, why not hook me up with the Misfits with some music? And then you know, uh, eventually they ended up uh, working out with the Misfits. So that happened. Um, They actually didn't apparently plan <laughs> to have the Misfits on a, the November 1st, 1990 uh, Monday Nitro. Uh, Vampiro was not, you know, he had briefly met him. He was not, you know, a, uh, he wasn't friends with him or anything. But the, he was still looking for somebody. It just happened that, uh, that they were actually playing right across the street from the Target Center. Uh, Jerry only uh, was pretty much really willing to down for anything at that moment. So, you know, him uh, and some of the other members just sort of crept down the aisle. <laughs> and it just happened that uh, they were in their stage gear. They were wearing their makeup. They surrounded the ring. <laughs> and they waited for the town to get involved. Uh, this happened to be a, a match with, I believe it was Vampiro in Berlin. Berlin's bodyguard uh, sort of went in, <laughs> and the Jerry only and Doi ended up getting involved. So it was very, very weird that this just sort of happened <laughs> with very, very little planning. <laughs> but they they managed to pull off their spots, so it worked out pretty, pretty well for them. So. I actually need to go back and watch this now that I think about it, because I this is not something that I even knew about until I saw this article on WhatCulture.com. I didn't realize they weren't really planned to be here that night. It just happened that it was a coincidence across the street. There was all sorts of weird stuff that went on with with uh, WCW behind the scenes, but the Misfits things is this whole set of behind the scenes stuff that I was not aware of altogether too. So uh, a lot of this stuff I was not aware of until I happened to come across this article a few days ago. So. Uh, it's actually weird also that the Misfits guitar, guitarist Doyle ended up doing Vampiro's makeup. <laughs> that was not something I was aware of, so I guess they probably ended up doing a little bit of a uh, switch it up a little bit. Actually, I should, I, 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 that's something I want to go back and compare too, because I remember because I remember his makeup, but I was not aware that it there was a little bit of a switch to it after uh, he sort of. You know, went from ICP to uh, to the Misfits sort of era. So that's definitely something you should check out. I'm not going to try to Google that while I talk about this other stuff because nothing worse than dead air. So I'm not going to try to do that. And I'm not going to try to multitask. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Other interesting thing after that, Jerry only ended up buying a ring (laughs) after this. So it's very, very weird. You know, he's like, okay, I guess whatever Jerry only does, he tries to hit 100%. Vampiro indicated is like it's it's like Jerry only is like on a caffeine high twenty four hours a day, so he just threw himself into it. He actually did uh, buy a wrestling ring. WCW had given him a one year contract, so he thought he could he thought he could be champion. He thought he was going to be Hulk Hogan, <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous. But you never know. WCW they did give the belt to David Arquette, so I guess anything's possible. Also turned out Jerry Lonely was the only one who really wanted to have a match. <laughs> so looking back on it, it definitely explains how Jerry Lonely ended up having that match with uh Dr. Death. And if you think about it, Mrs. having a match with Dr. Death actually seems that makes complete complete sense now that I think about it. Anyway, uh Even though they were they they were sort of down with Vampiro, they weren't really looking to take bumps and uh, get beat up. Even though it was you know somewhat make believe beat up, even though you still get hit, you still bump. They weren't down for that. So uh... plus, there's also the risk of if you get hurt, you can't play your instrument. So there's that. So anyway, Jerry only was the only one in really up for the real match. Downside to that is, it looks like they were actually, you know, kind of smart about that, the other band members, because Dr. Jeff beat the hell out of Jerry Oli for real. <laughs> that was that was the time when Dr. Jeff, Steve Williams, had his run in WCW. Uh, he had, you know, had the brawl for all thing in WWF that was supposed to be sort of his launching point to go for it, and he ended up getting hurt in that, and he was released shortly after after doing a couple of jobs. So we went there with uh, Oklahoma, which was a parody of the JR gimmick. He beat the holy hell out of Jerry Only. But he did end up uh, winning the match because he basically threw him out of the ring. <laughs> so it worked. I guess it worked out victory-wise. He's pretty much undefeated in wrestling. Now, here's the craziest thing that I was not aware of. I, I was aware that uh, Gorgeous George, who was uh, Randy Orton's girlfriend at the time, you know, this is who he had he'd been dating not too long after he uh, broke up with Miss Elizabeth in real life. Uh, basically, the word is that Randy Randy Savage was a very, very possessive sort of a guy, very jealous. He was abusive. Apparently, when the Misfits came back, she fell in love with one of the members of the Misfits. She actually fell in love with Doyle. They ended up uh, ended up being in a, in a band together called Gorgeous Frankenstein. See, I had been aware of this band, 
but I was not aware of the fact that basically <laughs> he basically stole her stole her from Randy Savage. So they had, they actually did ended up getting married eventually, but although they did divorce back in 2013. So that was something that I consider insane. Of course, Randy Savage was not happy about this, so he went looking for, for Doyle at a concert. <laughs> and of course, uh, discretion being a better part of valor, uh, Doyle wanted no part of that. <laughs> so, so when Macho Man came to the show, he just sort of took his guitar, went down through the audience, and walked out the front door. Because <laughs> Randy Savage was, was backstage. So that's freaking hilarious. <laughs> Although it probably wasn't nearly as hilarious when he went looking for him. Uh, one of the problems that uh, was eventually led to the demise of Jerry Only and the Misfits in WCW, apparently after he got the crap beat of him by uh, Dr. Death, he asked who could stitch him up because he was bleeding. He's like, where's the guy who could stitch me up? He was told, there's no guy. <laughs> there was no medical personnel on hand. That bothered him, so he tried to eventually tried to unionize the uh, unionize the wrestlers. The creative team gave him a script, and he held that up as evidence that they should be protected by a union, like the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, he had he had experience with lawyers for his music stuff, so his offer was not welcome. And that boy, he was he probably much he pretty much knew he was not going to be staying there for long. Per uh, Word on the street, and of course, probably the weirdest part to this whole story is Jerry only was concerned that WCW was trying to steal the band's name. <laughs> this is something I'd never heard. I don't, I don't even know if this is actually true. I think this might have just been some of his paranoia, but he he was convinced that they wanted to gain rights to the band's merchandising get rid of him because he was trying to start a union. He actually posted some sort of weird screed on the uh, website for the band. And multiple times he accused the WCW of trying to steal the band from him, turn his bandmates on him, have Vampiro place him in the band. That's some of the weirdest stuff I've ever heard. Like, I'm pretty sure, I'm guessing WCW is not trying to do that. Of course, on the end, you know, Jerry only got beat up really bad, so he might have had some... <laughs> Uh, issues with his brain. I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm saying that's possible. It's a possibility. At any rate, uh, eventually after that, the Misfits were pretty much done with that particular lineup after that. They actually broke up on stage doing a concert in 2000. So that is a, the short version of the crazy story involving the Misfits in WCW. A lot of stuff that I was not aware of that was going on at the time because WCW was a crazy, you know, scene uh, backstage with Hogan and Diesel and people backstabbing and trying to hold together a position and people not wanting to lose to each other and people keeping it within the family and all sorts of weird stuff. So uh, this is just another weird tale from WCW. So I want to credit WhatCulture.com for this. Uh, Nolan White is the author of the article of the Bizarre Tale of the Mystics in WCW. So if you want to read the whole article, you can check it out uh, there on their, on their website. any rate, let's move on to something a little bit different. Uh, this is actually a Vice article from about three years ago. Uh, this was in the 
in the aftermath of the uh, situation where they were going to have the Fabulous Moolah sort of battle royal. Uh, so Vice wrote this article, and he, it was actually written by Corey Erdman, I believe his name. Uh, so you can Google it. You can you can Google the forgotten story of the first black female wrestlers. And again, what made me search out some more information about him was because I'd heard the story previously, but I kind of forgot about it. Uh, Darius Lockhart, that's at DLock Pro on uh, Twitter, uh, actually tweeted out a flyer, and I just happened to see it on Twitter, so I wanted to check it out. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember that story from a couple years ago. Let me check this out again. So I'm um, decided to look it up. And again, this is Vice.com, who, uh, if you want to check out this a little bit more, uh, back March 12th in 2018, WWE announced that it was going to have the inaugural women's battle royal at WrestleMania after Fabulous Moolah. Of course, uh, that was not a, <laughs> it was not as kindly received as they ex- expected it. Um, the weird thing about it was, you know, Within WWTV, Moolis has been like the legend and always pretty much been viewed as a positive figure. You know, Vince obviously had a great respect for her. A lot of the talent, in-ring talent, had a great respect for her. But the reality is, after uh, she died, many people came out saying, hey, she was not this wonderful figure that we talked about. Even though she was a beloved figure, she was treating us terrible. She was abusive. Uh, there's accusations that she actually pimped some of the talent out, that she sort of intentionally sort of held the talent down. Uh, she would take their money. She would uh, not only take money for them, you know, for training, but even after she trained them, uh, well, during training, she would take money for them from root and board. I mean, which is not completely unreasonable, depending on what the fees charge, but... Uh, even after they were trained, she was still taking money for them. She was actually, actually it was sort of a manager, and she was taking excessive fees from them. And those are sort of different accusations that were thrown at her. And again, like I said, the worst stuff is the sexual, sexually abusive stuff, though. Uh, it is the stuff that they've been for decades, apparently. So basically, after a week, eventually WWE decided to pull a plug on it and decided this was not the way to go. Uh, so, uh, what Vice did was they said, hey, there's this, uh, there's this other story of these other women that maybe these would have been like, you know, wonderful people to sort of name about, sort of uh, name the event after. But they include Ethel Johnson, Babs Wingo, Kathleen Wimbley, and Marba Scott. These were like the sort of the f- first, uh, four, uh, pioneers of black females in wrestling. Um, all of those women are women. They were like announced on the flyer that I mentioned earlier that uh, that was tweeted out, with the exception of uh, Marva Scott is not on it. Uh, so there's no picture of Marva Scott on this particular uh, flyer. Um, but at any rate, uh, actually, I take that back. Let's see, let me let me double check. Uh, Kathleen Willey's on it. Ethel Johnson's on it. There's no Marva Scott on this particular flyer. Um, and there's no uh, no there's no Babs Wingo on it either. So there is actually a separate woman on it. It's actually uh, uh, it says Tina, I believe Cole. 
So this is this is a little bit uh, confusing to me a little bit, but uh, again, this is like a flyer, and it looked like somebody took a picture and scanned it, so I can't uh, get a little bit more information from it off the top of my head, though. So uh, anyway, if I'm able to straighten this out a little bit, I'll try to do it at some point in the future, either either, either via tweet or you know on the King David Lane account or on the VLC Nation account. But uh, but yeah, it's still a, it's still a nice flyer to check out. They got them on posing, you know, doing the sort of double biceps pose and some of the other stuff like that. But anyway, uh, back to their story a little bit. Uh, women's wrestling had a broom around the World War II era because you got to get remember at that time, a lot of the men were out of the country. They were like fighting. So women were able to work in factories for the first time consistently. They were able to uh, sort of, you know, become athletes like, you know, you've seen a movie, A League of Their Own. Uh, although that was a segregated league, uh, you weren't able to see, unfortunately, you weren't able to see uh, any black female players there. Although there were, there were there were like at least a good at least three black women who played in the Negro leagues, by the way. And technically, uh, since Major League Baseball has announced that the Negro leagues now qualify as major leagues, technically there's been th- at least three women who played in the major leagues now. So that's something else you would, uh, you can look up to. Although I'm not going to cover it this week. Uh, on this week's show, that's something you definitely Google if you want to see the women who played in the Negro Leagues. That was definitely another uh, interesting story that I might, you know, do a little uh, too many black guys segment on that at some point since that's not wrestling. Uh, but that's definitely something you can check out on your own if you want to as well. So, but anyway, uh, Mildred Burke became one of the most popular athletes back then. Uh, she was married to Billy Wolf. They controlled women's wrestling at the time. They were trainers and they were bookers for the female talent. Uh, Burke ended up being undefeated for a very, very long time. She had diamonds. Uh, she made $50,000 a year, which, you know, back in the day, 50000 you know, 50000 is, you know, a decent middle class living right now. But back then, that was big, big bucks. So uh, that was very, very impressive. Uh, the wave of women's wrestling continued through the early 50s. Uh, and they saw the income. They saw the money she was making. Babs Wingo, Ethel Johnson, uh, they were sisters, so they uh, were living in Columbus. Babs Wingo went first. Ethel Johnson came second. And they ended up uh, training to become professional wrestlers. There's actually, uh, there's actually a documentary out that you can probably check out called Lady Wrestler if you want to get a little bit more information on this, but definitely check that out if you want to get a little more info on it. But they actually took judo and gymnastics classes at the YMCA to go with their wrestling training, so they sort of had a you know high-flying style that was not you know what you might expect for women back then. But anyway, uh. One sad part about wrestling's history is like back then it wasn't written down and documented really, really as smooth as you'd expect. At any rate, uh, eventually, uh, you know, Ethel Johnson debuted at 16. Her younger sister uh, later made her debut in 1954. And then they actually had a friend, Kathleen Wimley, so she would have been like the she would have been like the fourth one, you know, to go with them because there's the three sisters and her as well. So. Uh, Anyway, like I said, they were very, very popular. They were at regularly in main events. It was usually one of them against the other one in the main events. Uh, 
Uh, usually Johnson was the one, Ethel Johnson was the one that got the victory most of the time. Uh, but they were, like I said, this is rare because they were like black women. They were like the main attractions on a lot of these events and they ended up setting attendance records in a lot of different places. So uh, they were regularly getting like 9,000 for a municipal auditorium in Kansas City. Uh, Johnson and Wingo got top billing with stars like Gorgeous George, who was one of the most famous wrestlers of all time back in the day. Uh, he was, he's sort of, you know, when we think of professional wrestling, he's probably the closest guy to call it innovative to what they have as far as having a gimmick, having personality, really putting on that showmanship. He was like one of the, he was probably the first guy when we think of, when we think of modern professional wrestling. Uh, Johnson and Wingo went for the NWA women's uh, title both uh, once. Uh, Scott was ranked as high as number three in the world by Ring Magazine in 1968. And by the way, it's kind of weird that they were ranked, you know, they got titles. Uh, Marvin Scott was ranked number three in 68. <coughs> NWA champion Mula was ranked 14. <laughs> How are you the NWA champion in rank 14? That, that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. But uh, as we later found out, uh, uh, during their prime, Johnson, Wingo, Wimley, Scott, they were like among the highest paid black athletes in the United States. Uh, they were making, a, uh, Wimley was making around $10,000 a year, which if you compare it to what Mildred Burke was making, significantly less. They said they made as much as uh, 300 a week sometimes. So it doesn't seem like that much money, but the median house income back then was like 3,300. So they were making three times as much as the average, you know, household was making back then. And of course, they got to hang out with like other stars, you know, over that day, you know, particularly black athletes like uh, the Globetrotters and uh, Joe Lewis. One one thing that I did uh, thought was interesting about this is they were do they were having great sort of athletic matches back then, and this was like the this was like the you know the early fifties, uh, early sixties from that time period. But if you think about it, they actually, as far as the ability to have great in ring matches, that was a little bit different than it would have been if they would have came out around in the seventies eighties. If you think about it, WWF didn't have any black female wrestlers uh, in the in the mid '80s to late '80s until uh, Sapphire came out, and she was more of a manager. A lot of the wrestling in the '80s and '90s was like TNA type stuff. They did have a little bit more of a you know better basis as far as athleticism in, in the mid '80s when you had like Mula, and uh, not that Mula was athletic by any means. We'll get into that probably in a second, but, uh, you know, like, uh, when you had talents like, uh, Randy Richter and, you know, women like that, but, uh, and then no women ended up holding a world championship until Jacqueline did it in 98. So if you think about it, they were, they actually, the fact that they actually got title shots was pretty impressive back in the fifties in and sixties. At any rate, uh, this is like, like I said, back in the 50s and 60s, like you had like people like Ethel Johnson was doing uh, drop kicks, 
flying hair scissors, atomic drops, all sorts of buffs and all kinds of stuff at the time. So very, very athletic, very, very impressive moves back in the day. And then, you know, uh, unfortunately, after they sort of, you know, left, the, as they started to leave the business, wrestling, women's wrestling took a different turn, like I mentioned. Like I said, like the 70s and 80s, wrestling became a little bit more TNA, less athletic on the women's side. Uh, turns out Burke and, Burke and Wolf's divorce ended up with them splitting their company. The women basically ended up having to uh, take sides one or the other. Moolah rose sort of at that point, so she ended up getting a lot of power with her and her husband. And that sort of, you know, led to a situation where Moolah didn't want to be upstage, so she would sort of, you know, uh, hold women down with that letter system. She didn't want them showing out too much. Uh, and apparently, like I said, this is not something I was aware of, you know, as far as her holding the other woman down, as far as, you know, holding back on her training tell them not to be so athletic. Basically, the whole catfight stuff that we knew, that I knew really popular, me and ECW, but also they had stuff like Foxy Boxing, in, I think in the 80s, you know, that sort of, you know, set of style where they weren't actually trying to fight the same way that you, you would expect men, male wrestlers to do it. That is a larger result of Moolah, if you listen, if you believe this article. I haven't done any further research on it, so I don't want to you know, list this as a blanket statement, but it, it would make a lot of sense if that's the way it happened. Considering all we knew about, you know, what we believe Moolah did and uh, the reports that came out after she passed away, so. But anyway, uh, I just want to reiterate, like I said, it was great that uh, prior to this sort of dead era women's wrestling, it sort of ended up running. While there was, while there was don't get me wrong, there was some Definitely some talented women in the 80s and 90s. Once you started getting to the late, uh, the mid to late 90s and, and WWF slash WWE, it sort of went way downhill. And it went from one point where you barely had any women wrestling at all to them basically just hiring models and stuff and having them put in matches and it being bad wrestling. And then next thing you know, they're wrestling in jello or pudding or whatever other ridiculous concepts you like. Not that, you know, not that I necessarily minded it at the time, but if you want to build an athletic division, you know, if, you, if you're trying to tell a story of actual fighting, they could have had that, you know, you know, sort of TNA stuff during the Attitude Era, at the same time actually been pushing talent in real division. Like, it's like when WWE had matches with Harpy Wolverman and some some other I can't remember whatever what the other guy was when they had a tuxedo match. If you want to do some that kind of stuff with some of the women that are you know attractive women that are you know legitimately trained, legitimately athletic women wrestlers, I have no problem with that. But you still can have the actual talent there and don't push those to the top of your division. Anyway, if you want to check this article out, uh, again that's Vice.com. The title article is the forgotten story of the first female black wrestlers. So. Definitely check it out if you, if you have a chance to want something wrestling related. That's also Black History related as well. That's a good thing to check out. So, at any rate, we will move on now to uh, the NXT salaries. Uh, apparently, we got a little bit of an update, and I want to pick SD Scoopson information. 
is recently addressed on the episode of Wrestling Observer Radio. So I want to thank Ian Carey from SC Scoops as well as uh, Dave Meltzer. Turns out, basically, they, they believe that Sin Balor is probably making the neighborhood of maybe two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand. Uh, but they are making a, a more more than the fifty to seventy five thousand. Somebody guessed it. They're probably in the low one hundred thousands for the top NXT talent. Obviously, excluding like a guy like Balor, somebody who's probably you know spent a same amount of time on the main roster. Put main roster quotation marks because really we really shouldn't honestly we really shouldn't call it that anymore because NXT is its own sort of thing. The the performance center is its sort of own thing now. The people who are training for either the the uh, Raw or SmackDown brands NXT the performance center are those sort of what would have been the NXT people people previously. It's also believed that Adam Cole is one of the guys that's making, you know, a little bit more than the low, you know, one K. He's probably making 130 to 150 range. If you're, they, if they believe that anybody who's spent a significant amount of time in NXT is making around 130,000 range or so like that. So, uh, and usually when you start, you're making maybe 50 to 60,000. You might get a little bit more if you're like a football player or something like that. So it was very, very, you know, you can make a decent living doing that. Anyway, moving on. Uh, I want to say rest in peace to Tom Cole. Uh, he was one of the victims of the 80s, uh, what's known as the Rain Boy scandal. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's believed that, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say believed. But there was basically, you know, WWE employees being uh, sexually abusive to, you know, the talent. Uh, There was court cases and all kinds of stuff. Um, It happened back then, like I said. uh, Basically, uh, Terry Garvin was was the... uh, the main uh, corporate of this, and actually, this is this is one of those things that I sort of forgot about too, by the way, because apparently, uh, I knew Ron Garvin, who was his quote KFA brother, but Terry, I didn't really, and I wasn't really all that familiar with. But anyway, uh, basically, in the nineties, was QZ had been sexually arresting an underage ring boy who had been fired after refusing uh, refusing his advances. Later, there was a settlement reach. Uh, Pat Patterson, ring announcer Mike Mill Phillips, and Garvin all ended up resigning after that. Uh, a retired wrestler, Barry Orton, actually called in to when Mr. McMahon was on Larry King Live about the incident and said that uh, Garvin had actually sexually assaulted him in 78 when he was 19. He also accused him of harming his wrestling after his other advances were declined. Uh, and of course, uh, Barry Orton is like the, uh, his father was Bob Orton. He was the brother of Bob Orton Jr. His nephew was Randy Orton. So, uh, so it's not just like nobody making that accusation. Um, but anyway, uh, Uh, Back to the uh, Tom Cole situation. 
he was one of the victims at the center of the scandal. Uh, he ended up committing suicide. Um, his brother, Lee, put out a statement on Twitter over the weekend and addressed the WWE. This is a quote, so I'm going to read this word for word. My brother, Tom, committed suicide a couple hours ago. This man and his wife, Linda, let child molesters into the company years ago and did everything possible to cover up what they did to my brother. I hope you can sleep good at night, Vince. Our family suffers. Thank you. He tweeted. It's also uh, a wrestling generous uh, David Dixon Span uh, tweeted about it as well. Uh, this is his uh, comment. He actually put a link to a business inside the article. But uh, it's an article that he wrote. Uh, but here's his tweet. As his brother Lee tweeted below, Tom Cole, 50, the central accuser in the WWE ring boy molestation scandal, killed himself tonight. I'll have a lot more to say, but this fucking sucks. If you don't know this story, then start with my BI feature from October. And then links to the article. So, uh, basically, uh, we've talked about uh, sexual abuse. We've talked about mental health on this show before. I'm, I'm not going to uh, delve in it too much more tonight. But if you, if you need help, please seek help. And like I said, and like I said, it, it also also gives me mixed feelings about you know some of the things you follow. Like I said, uh, even though a settlement is reached, when you reach a settlement, that doesn't mean you're in the clear as far as moral culpability. It means you're in the clear, quote, legally. Uh, I've been a fan of WWS less WWE over the years. It kind of makes you wonder, like like I said, when you, when they have had so many different types of scandals in WWE, you know, what are we doing here? But at the same point, you know, it's like you have something that you really, really enjoy, and there's not a lot of outlets for it as much as, at least, like I said, now we're, we're a little bit more of a golden age. So after, you know, a lot of the territories were put out of business, a lot of companies were put out of business, we sort of have just started to rebuild it over the last, I'd say, decade or so. It's starting to been put together stronger, but it just makes you wonder, like, like you said, sometimes, what are you doing? Should you just, you know, say – Screw WWF and just get away from it. Should should you be giving your money to it? It's just some, it's just something to consider. Anyway, uh, rest in peace, Mr. Tom Cole. <sighs> A little bit of more positive story. Uh, on Wisha Nag. I believe it's his name. I apologize if I mispronounced that as a, a fan of Indian descent. Uh, he's the SD Scoops correspondent who actually commented on some of spectacles. Since last week, I, I believe it was that I mentioned that I would like to hear, you know, Indian fans' perspective on what the show was like. Um, this provides a proper opportunity for me to do so. Um, and I'll start off with some of his uh, earlier comments regarding uh, the Indian market and whatnot. Uh, and then again, you can check out the article too if you want. WWE Superstar Seth Gold from an Indian fan's point of view. Uh, I will read his opening paragraph and then I will try to paraphrase you know, things a little bit later. Uh, WWE is finally starting to make inroads into one of the largest untapped markets they have for their product, India, known for being the second most populous country in the world with 1.4 billion people. 
India has long been one of the markets many companies have tried to enter. Given the large population capturing even a tiny percentage of the market enables the country to reach another level. With the WWE Superstar Spectacle, WWE hosted one of their first televised events directed completely towards their Indian audience. Uh, then he, he goes a little bit into the stats as far as you know WWE's reach in India. WWE has a large ready-made market in India already. When it comes to viewership, WWE is second to cricket in as far as the sports they watch. A large part of the WWE audience in India is young, although they do need to break down some societal and cultural barriers. Uh, WWE is not widely accepted in the culture because the violence and genre leads to taboo quality is difficult to overcome. However, large persons in the Indian audience are watching it. They're not discussing it. So it's kind of a little bit on the download sort of thing that they're, they're judged in. They do have, you know, similar categories to American fans, casual fans, and smart fans. Uh, they do have a diehard smart base for WWE who do not who not only follow Raw and SmackDown, but also NXT. And they do have a very, very good broadcast partner with Sony Sports. So it's not only broadcast live, it's also repeated throughout the day at very, very popular times. They do have another fan, set of fans that have it, but they tune in at times and add to the viewership tremendously because of how many of them there are. Apparently, uh, by the, according to Economic Times, WrestleMania 33 had a massive reach across their channels. 67.3 million viewers. And um, WWE consumption on YouTube, India ranks first as far as the viewers worldwide. That means there's more people watching from India than anywhere else in the world, including the United States. Obviously, there's a lot more people there. They have a billion more people than we have, over a billion more people than we have. But still, that's that's not as significant that they're number one considering how long WWE's been in America and how long they've had access to the Indian market. Uh, now, something else he notes in 2018, they made the decision to push Jinder Mahal, even though he had only been a jobber before for the most part. It wasn't quite as successful as WWE hoped. I remember we we discussed it on the show as far as we we felt that they should have took longer time to sort of build him up before pushing him to the top. But I did I did think that he did a good job as a heel. Uh, and it did, it did uh, unfortunately uh, rely a little bit too much on stereotypes, according to uh, Mr. Nag, and I do agree with that. Pretty much any non-American origin uh, wrestler, even though I believe I believe Ginger is actually Canadian, Pakistani, and not technically Indian anyway. <laughs> but anyway, uh, even though you know Pakistan is from the Indian subcontinent, it's not actually technically India. <laughs> but that's 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 a different subject for a different day, I believe. Anyway. But uh the Giants uh seem to do very, very well according to uh Mr. Nag as well. Because, you know, the the uh the uh great Kali had been very, very popular. And they had uh they probably could have did very, very well with him or, you know, another giant. And I did notice they had a couple of giants on their show, so that might be a something else that they might consider going forward. Uh, he did feel like the great Kali had a great sort of uh, 
presence when he was with WWE and the fact that he was just sort of giant, they sort of you know beat up people like Batista and Undertaker, Triple H, and he had been a champion already. And even though when he started slowing down as he got older and he got a little bit more stiffer and made it much, much harder for him, he still managed to maintain a popularity in the Indian market. So that's something else interesting. He's still a big star and very famous within the Indian fans. So that's something else that they could use. They could use him more to sort of give the rub to maybe some of the younger talent. So uh, according to uh, Mr. Egg, they're trying to make uh, India their base of operations in Asia, and that's something that they appreciate. Uh, they did have a lot of young stars that were able to sort of get some ring time. And according to uh, Mr. Nett, his conclusion, his last conclusion in closing out to the article was, at this time, they have everything in their control and it depends on how they plan to develop. Given the proper push, they can find themselves sitting with a massive market share in this country. So overall, he did seem to enjoy it. He didn't really get into the ins and outs as far as, you know, how much he liked it or not, but he did seem to enjoy it. I, I would have liked to have a little bit more information about what he thought of the actual, you know, Indian talent. He did mention they were the young stars, they were allowed to shine, but I would like, I really would have liked a little bit more of a breakdown in the article. But uh, overall, though, uh, he concludes WWE can continue to book them strongly and find others like them, then they might have found a huge launch pad for their product in India. So, uh, it's nice to get a little bit of a different perspective. I wondered how the sort of Indian fans and people in India saw it, and they, they seem to have a positive uh, view of it, so that makes a huge difference. Because that's really who it was targeted to, even though American fans and you know people not of Indian descent actually were part of the market on the network. The fact that the Indian, or at least this one, you know, like I said, obviously I don't, don't expect him to speak for everybody, but I hope that he was able to give a, you know, at least a little bit of a perspective on that. Anyway, we'll move on. Uh, another interesting thing I saw, after Laura Sullivan was sort of, uh, after he was finally cut from WWE, he did release his one of his gimmicks that was sort of, uh, it didn't come through. He was supposed to be the brilliant behemoth. So if you go to his uh, Instagram, you can see some pictures of it. Um, definitely an interesting look. He had a bowler hat, a monocle. He had the sort of suspenders with slacks look that he had as well as, you know, obviously he's a large muscular-sized guy, so uh, he had a trench coat and some gloves. So I think this could have been a really, really interesting gimmick. I probably would have tweaked the look just a little bit because it was a little bit busy as far as having the scarf, the trench coat, the slacks, the bowler hat, everything. They probably could have just – but I, while I like it overall, they probably could have just toned it down a little bit or at least made the hat and jacket match a little bit more because I like the look overall, but it's, like I said, it seems like there's too many contrasting colors and things like that. So, uh, But if they were going to keep him, like I said, we would discuss on the show all the unfortunate you know, racist stuff he did and some other stuff that he did, but if they were going to keep him, this would have been a nice gimmick for them to use. So he did actually get punished, by the way. I think it was fined like $100,000. So I try to be willing to give people another chance if they mess up, as long as they don't keep making the same mistakes and doing the same stuff over and over again. <coughs> I hope that he did learn from his past history and has become a better person. Anyway, I will move on. <laughs> 
Eli Drake made his made his debut on the NXT Takeover pregame show, so he's now going by LA Knight. So uh, if you want to check that out, if you did not have a chance to watch the pre-show, they did air part of it during the uh, Takeover Vengeance uh, event, so you can see him. But yeah, other than that, he looks pretty much exactly the same. So he really the only apparent immediate change to his gimmicks is the fact that he's changed his name. So and that's WWE. That's what they do sometimes. Uh, update on Joey Ryan's lawsuits. Uh, he's filed multiple lawsuits uh, against accusers from the Speaking Out movement. He has a ton of lawsuits, not only against accusers, but also against Impact Wrestling and another person who spoke out against him online. Uh, according to SC Scoops and Hill by Nature, three of the lawsuits against female accusers have been dismissed. They were dismissed without prejudice, however, so that means he can't refile it. Apparently, he had missed uh, a February 5th deadline to file additional information. So, basically, that's what's happened with that. He also was awarded a default judgment against another accuser because the accuser did not respond to the lawsuit in time. There's a lawsuit going on against, I believe the name is Pile Primu as well. So, they're actually setting up some... um, GoFundMe's to help with their expenses for some of the talent that has, or some of the talent, some of the women that have, and other you know, people who are dealing with these court cases that he's filed. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, Ryan Namath, who was recently uh, appeared in AEW recently, uh, actually tweeted out, you know, back during June of 2020. After a fan wrote, I always wonder why you stopped getting booked for that bar wrestling. You're a good dude. Thank you for speaking out. And, of course, he tweeted out, uh, when I say Ryan, Ryan Nemeth, uh, Dolph Ziggler's brother, uh, Hot Young Briley on Twitter, just since we're talking about Joy Ryan, I don't want to get people confused. When he says you're a good dude, Ryan, he's talking about Ryan Nemeth, not Joy Ryan. <laughs> anyway, his reply to that was, if you've been a starting woman for your entire wrestling career, you just can't blame it. Can't blame it on a dick flip or relationship issues. You're a fucking loser, a liar, and a monster. You deserve to be exposed and ended. So uh, that was his uh, thought on it. At any rate, uh, a final uh, topic before I get out of here is I wanted to discuss a uh, WWE uh, meeting that has a lot of the employees angry and morale down. This is per WrestlingHeadlines.com. There was supposed to be a major meeting that was held uh, on February 12th. Um, and it was told many employees were not going to be getting promotions, bonuses, or raises, according to Fightful Select as well. The meeting ended with a few employees upset. Apparently left low morale for those who were present. Employees from production, WWE offices, and other departments was involved, but this is not talent arresters. There's no word yet on why WWE isn't providing pay raises or bonuses and promotions. Uh, but they did recently announce record financial results for 2020. They also have the Peacock money to lead to worth $1 billion over five years. So, like I said, when, if you weren't disgusted enough by uh, WWF slash WWE, this is a reason to be disgusted, <laughs> even more so. Record profits, people aren't getting their bonuses or you know raises and stuff like that. That they were expecting to get when you have record, you know, record profit during a pandemic, no less. When lots of people are on the street, 
it's just kind of disgusting. So I guess I'll just go ahead and leave it there. Uh, you've been listening to Wrestling with Problems, <laughs> and there's been seven w- several WWE problems tonight that I <laughs> had to address. So uh, thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. That's assuming that WWE does not get get us kicked off the network, which I don't think they actually have the power to do. But anyway, thanks for listening. I came looking for booty. I like you, and I want you. Now, we can do this the easy way, or we can do it the hard way. The choice is yours. Well, I don't think you and I will be doing anything any kind of way.